Second half of chapter twelve Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter twelve, second part. Stuart and the Gettysburg Campaign. Such was Stuart's ride around McClellan. The two armies stood still as spectators. A raid is a predatory incursion, generally against the supplies and communications of an enemy. The object of a raid is to embarrass an enemy by striking a vulnerable point and destroying his subsistence. The operation should be in cooperation with, but independent of, an army. But Stuart's march was a combined movement with Ewell and not a raid. His objective was Ewell's flank on the Susquehanna. The spoil he captured was an incident, not the object of the march. It was no more a raid than if he had crossed the Blue Ridge, as he was authorized by Lee, and travelled to join Ewell by a route on which he would have had no opportunity for adventure. But General Lee's orders show that he was not indifferent either to the embarrassment of the enemy or to the spoil he might capture. Ewell already had an abundance of cavalry for ordinary outpost duty. It was the personality of Stuart that was needed, not cavalry. During this campaign the operations of the cavalry were coordinate with the movements of the army as a unit. On the evening of June 27th Lee arrived at Chambersburg, while Hill turned east and went on seven miles. This shows that General Lee did not intend to move farther north, but to concentrate in that vicinity. Ewell had reached Carlisle, thirty miles distant, so Lee wrote him on the evening of the 27th to return to Chambersburg and informed him that Hooker had crossed the Potomac. This dispatch is not in the war records, but it seems that Lee changed his mind, and at 7.30 a.m. on the 28th, in a second letter, repeated the substance of what he wrote Ewell last night, and directed him that, if he had not already started, he moved south with his trains, but east of South Mountain. It is clear that Ewell's destination was Cashtown, a village at the eastern base of the mountain, eight miles west of Gettysburg. Discretion was given to him as to the roads he should travel. Ewell's and Early's reports say that Cashtown was the appointed rendezvous, Lee's that it was Gettysburg. Cashtown was occupied on June 28th by a part of Heth's division. In the next two days Hill moved with two divisions to that point. Ewell had detached Early's division to make a demonstration towards the Susquehanna. On the way Gordon's brigade spent a night at Gettysburg, but it moved on and joined Early at York. If Gettysburg had been Lee's objective, he would have held it when he had it. Lee's report says that on the night of June 28, a spy came in and informed him that Hooker was following him. The news, the report says, was a surprise. That he had thought Hooker's army was in Virginia, that he had expected Stuart to give him notice when Hooker crossed the Potomac, and that he abandoned a campaign he had planned against Harrisburg, recalled Ewell, and ordered his army to concentrate at Gettysburg. As he had uninterrupted communication with the Potomac, Lee knew that the Union army must be east of the mountain. We accept as of poetical origin the legends of prehistoric Rome, which Livy transmitted, but it is as easy to believe the story of the rape of the Sabines 
or that Horatius stood alone on the bridge over the Tiber against the army of the Gauls, as that Lee planned a campaign into Pennsylvania on the theory that his army could march to Harrisburg, and Hooker's army would stay on the Potomac. If Lee had not known, when he was in Maryland, that Hooker was still on his front, he would have marched directly to Washington. If his statement be true that the news brought by a spy arrested a campaign he had planned to Harrisburg, such an anticlimax would make the campaign a subject for a comic opera. If a spy had come from Frederick on June 28, he would have reported that Hooker's army was moving eastward toward Baltimore, and was concentrated at Frederick. Colonel Marshall said, On the night of the 28th of June I was directed by General Lee to order General Ewell to move directly upon Harrisburg, and to inform him that General Longstreet would move the next morning, the 29th, to his support. General A. P. Hill was directed to move eastward to the Susquehanna, and crossing the river below Harrisburg, seize the railroad between Harper's Ferry and Philadelphia it being supposed that such a movement would divert all reinforcements that otherwise might be coming to General Hooker to the defense of that city, and that there would be such alarm created by their movement that the Federal Government would be obliged to withdraw its army from Virginia and abandon any plan it might have for attack upon Richmond. I sent the orders about ten o'clock at night to General Ewell and General Hill, and had just returned to my tent when I was sent for by the commanding general. I went to his tent, and found him sitting with a man in citizen's dress, who, General Lee informed me, was a scout of General Longstreet's who had just been brought to him. He told me that this scout had left the neighborhood of Frederick that morning, and had brought information that the Federal Army had crossed the Potomac, moving northward, and that the advance had reached Frederick and was moving westward towards the mountains. The scout also informed General Lee that General Meade was then in command of the army, and also as to the movements of the enemy, which was the first information General Lee had received since he left Virginia. While making this march the only information he possessed led him to believe that the army of the enemy was moving westward from Frederick to throw itself upon his line of communications with Virginia, and the object was, as I have stated, simply to arrest this supposed plan on the east side of the mountain. By reason of the absence of the cavalry, his own army, marching eastward from Chambersburg and southward from Carlisle, came unexpectedly on the Federal advance on the first day of July. Marshall said that Lee countermanded his orders to Ewell and Hill to move to the Susquehanna and ordered them to Gettysburg, in order to counteract a movement against his communications. He did not mention Lee's letter of 7.30 a.m., June 28, which contradicts the story of the spy at Chambersburg on the night of June 28. That letter shows that when it was written, Lee thought that Hooker's army was still holding the gaps in Maryland, and had not heard that it had been withdrawn to Frederick. Lee does not appear to have been uneasy about his communications. Instead of ordering Ewell to proceed to Harrisburg, he directed him to return to Cashtown. It is inconceivable that he could have ordered A. P. Hill to cross the Susquehanna and threaten Philadelphia and at the same time should have ordered Early at York to come back to the Cumberland Valley. They would have passed each other marching in opposite directions. If the 7.30 a.m. letter should have been dated the 29th, as has been suggested, then neither of Lee's letters to Ewell could have reached him at Carlisle, as he would have left there before they arrived. 
Lee had written to Mr. Davis that he would have to abandon his communications, but if Hooker had moved west to intercept them, I am sure that General Lee would have imitated Napoleon at Austerlitz and marched to Washington. Lee's report on the Gettysburg campaign was published immediately and made a deep and almost indelible impression. It is really a lawyer's brief, and shows the skill of the advocate in the art of suppression and suggestion. Stewart's report, dated August 20, 1863, is a respectful answer, but it was buried in the Confederate archives. General Lee made a more elaborate report, in January 1864, which repeated the implications of the first in regard to the cavalry, but contradicted what it said about his orders for the concentration at Gettysburg. Of course, he knew his own orders as well in July as in January. Now the essence of the complaint against Stuart is that the cavalry, the eyes of an army, were improperly absent, that the Confederate army was ordered by Lee to Gettysburg, and Colonel Marshall and Lee's assistant adjutant general, Colonel Walter Taylor, said, and the report implies, ran unexpectedly against the enemy. But the charge falls to the ground when Lee's second report admits that the army was not ordered to Gettysburg, and that the force that went there was only making a reconnaissance. However, the report does not say that there was any order for a reconnaissance, or any necessity for making one. Neither does it explain why Hill did not come back to Cashtown, nor why Lee followed him to Gettysburg. Hill's report says that on the 30th, he sent a dispatch to General Lee telling him that the enemy held Gettysburg. A collision, then, could not be unexpected, if he went there. If, as Lee's report says, the spy brought news on the 28th that the Union army was at Frederick, it could not have been expected to stand still, nor a surprise to learn that it was moving north. But there is even less color to the truth, or justice in the complaint, when it is known that the story that a spy diverted the army from Harrisburg is a fable, and that Hill and Heth went off without orders and without Lee's knowledge on a raid and precipitated a battle. There is a satisfactory explanation for Stuart's absence that day, but a man who has to make an explanation is always at a disadvantage. Colonel Taylor does not seem to have known where Lee's headquarters were on the morning of July 1 for he said that A. P. Hill had a conference at Cashtown with General Lee before he started. If so, Lee was responsible for the blunder. Hill's and Heth's reports say that they left Cashtown at 5 a.m., and soon ran against the enemy. Lee's headquarters were then ten miles distant, west of the mountain at Greenwood. There was no long-distance phone over which he might talk with Hill. That morning Lee wrote to Imboden in his rear, and said, my headquarters for the present will be at Cashtown, east of the mountain. This letter is copied in his dispatch book in the handwriting of Colonel Marshall, who wrote Lee's report which states that Lee at Chambersburg, after the spy came in, ordered the army to Gettysburg and was unprepared for battle when the armies met, placing the blame on Stuart. Yet this dispatch shows that on the morning of July 1 the army had not been ordered to Gettysburg. Lee would not have had his headquarters at one place and his army eight miles off at another. Lee started during the day for Cashtown, as he told Imboden he would, and, when crossing the mountain, was surprised to hear the ominous sound of battle. He passed through Cashtown at full speed and never saw the place again. 
His surprise was not at the enemy being at Gettysburg, but that a part of his army was there. It is remarkable that Colonel Taylor, who was in close relations with General Lee, did not even mention a projected movement to Harrisburg that was arrested by a spy. Lee's report omits all reference to Ewell's march in advance of the army to the Susquehanna, and the order to Stuart to leave the army in Virginia and join him. As it complains that by the route he chose around the Union army communication with him was broken, it is natural to conclude from this statement that Stuart disobeyed orders to keep in communication with Lee. The report speaks of Ewell's entering Maryland, and says that Longstreet and Hill followed, and that the columns were reunited at Hagerstown. The inference is that the three corps united at that place, and that Stuart was directed to join them in Maryland. The fact is that Ewell was then some days in advance in Pennsylvania, and that the three corps united on the field of Gettysburg. Stuart, says the report, was left to guard the passes, observe the movements of the enemy, and harass and impede him if he attempted to cross the Potomac. In that event, Hooker's crossing, he was directed to move into Maryland, crossing the Potomac east or west of the Blue Ridge, as in his judgment should be best, and take position on the right of our column as it advanced. Stuart's crossing the Potomac did not depend on Hooker's crossing, and he had no such instructions. Lee's orders to Stuart's, which I repeat, were, In either case, after crossing the river, whether you go by the eastern or western route, you must move on and feel the right of Ewell's troops, collecting information, provisions, etc. The report states a part of the truth in saying that Stuart had the discretion to cross the Potomac, east or west of the Blue Ridge, but it omits the whole truth, and that he also had authority to pass by the enemy's rear. That was the only route he could go if he crossed east of the ridge. As the report complains of the Union Army being interposed and preventing communication with him by the route he went, the inference is that Stuart violated orders in passing by the enemy's rear. Stuart had no orders, as stated in the report, about guarding the gaps, impeding the enemy, and reporting his movements, nor to watch Hooker in Virginia and forage for Ewell on the Susquehanna. Such an expectation implies a belief that Stuart possessed a supernatural genius. The report speaks of Stuart's efforts to impede the progress of the Northern Army. He made no such efforts. He had no such orders. It impeded him. The report makes no mention of the use that Lee and Longstreet made of the two cavalry brigades which Stuart left with them. They must have done their duty, for there was no complaint that they did not. To return to Lee at Chambersburg. On the night of the 27th he had written to Ewell at Carlisle that Hooker had crossed the Potomac and was in the Middletown Valley at the east end of the Gaps, and directed him to return to Chambersburg. It was time to concentrate the army. But Lee changed his mind, and at 7.30 a.m. on the 28th he again wrote Ewell, repeating what he had told him in the last night letter about Hooker, but directed him to move south by the pike and east of the mountain. He did not mention Meade, who had not then been placed in command. The letter is indefinite as to the point of concentration. That was evidently a precaution in the event of its capture. Such an important dispatch would be sent by a staff officer, so that he might explain it orally, 
and, as they were in the enemy's country, he would have a cavalry escort. Ewell sent a copy of this dispatch, by a staff officer, to Early, thirty-six miles away at York. It could not have been written after the night of the twenty-seventh. Early said that he received it on the evening of the twenty-ninth, and started the next morning to unite with Ewell, west of the mountain. But during the day he met a courier with a dispatch from Ewell, informing him of the change of destination. This statement proves that Ewell at Carlisle received two letters from Lee. Although he sent a copy of Lee's first order to Early, in his report Ewell only referred to the second order, under which he marched with Rhodes' division for Cashtown. Edward Johnson's division left Carlisle for Chambersburg on the morning of the 29th, before the second order arrived, and marched to Green Village twenty miles that day. Lee's dispatch of the night of the 27th could not have reached Carlisle before the evening of the 28th. If it had been written on the night of the 28th, it could not have reached Ewell before he got to Harrisburg. The trains probably started back that night, before Edward Johnson left, as they were passing Chambersburg at midnight on the 29th. They probably halted in the heat of the day, as was the custom, to rest and feed the animals. Lee directed Ewell, if he received the second order in time, to move south with the trains by the eastern route. So it is clear that Early's and Johnson's divisions marched in accordance with the order of the 27th, which Ewell did not mention. Early said that he met Ewell that evening, June 30, with Rhodes' division near Heidlersburg. Rhodes told him that Cashtown was to be the point of concentration, and that he was to march there the next morning. On July 1, Ewell had started, with Rhodes and Early's division, on the road to Cashtown, when he received a note from Hill that turned him off to Gettysburg. Ewell left Carlisle with Rhodes's division on the 30th, after he had received Lee's second letter, changing his destination. Ewell said, I was starting on the 29th for that place, Harrisburg, when ordered by the general commanding to join the main body at Cashtown, near Gettysburg. Although two of his divisions marched under the first order, Ewell's report speaks only of the second order. He is clearly inaccurate in saying that the second order to move south to Cashtown was the cause of his halting at Carlisle. He had already been halted by the first order. On this lapse of the pen is based the quibble that the date, June 27, of Lee's letter to Ewell is wrong, and Edward Johnson's division had started back to Chambersburg. The time of the marching of Ewell's three divisions accords with the dates of the two letters, and proves that before the spy is alleged to have appeared, the night of the 28th, Lee had sent orders to Ewell to return to Chambersburg, and that he afterwards directed him to Cashtown. In these letters he told Ewell where Hooker's, not Meade's, army was. Again Lee's report says that as the spy had informed him on the night of the 28th, that the head of Hooker's column had reached the South Mountain, which was a menace to his communications, he resolved to concentrate at Gettysburg, east of the mountains, to prevent his further progress, and that he issued orders accordingly. But Lee, on the night of the 27th and morning of the 28th, had directed the army to return. As he ordered Ewell back to Chambersburg on the night of the 27th, and then to Cashtown on the morning of the 28th, 
the statement that he was preparing to move on to Harrisburg when the spy came in on the night of the 28th and brought news that Hooker was in pursuit, cannot stand the test of reason. If the order to Ewell to return had been issued after the spy is alleged to have come in, it would not have overtaken Ewell before he got to Harrisburg. Nor could the order to concentrate at Cashtown have been the consequence of news brought by the alleged spy, as it had been issued before it is said that the spy came. If Gettysburg had been Lee's objective, he could easily have occupied it on the 29th, before Meade left Frederick. As Lee's Chambersburg letter contradicts his report, his biographers did not mention it. Lee's second report speaks of two cavalry brigades being in Virginia to guard the gaps, and says that as soon as it was known that the enemy was in Maryland, orders were sent to them to join the army. They were not put there to guard the gaps, for the gaps did not need a guard. Their instructions were to watch and report the movements of the enemy to General Lee, and to follow on the flank of the army when the enemy moved from their front. On the night of June 27, Hooker's rear guard crossed the river, and on the 29th the two cavalry brigades crossed the Blue Ridge and arrived at Chambersburg on the night of July 2. If an order was sent for them after the spy came in, as the report says, it could not have reached them on the 29th, in Loudoun County, Virginia, before they started. They marched in accordance with Stuart's orders. The allegation is that the Confederate Army was surprised at Gettysburg on account of the absence of the cavalry. The gist of the complaint is that Gettysburg was Lee's objective, as his first report says, that the leading divisions of Hill's corps ran unexpectedly against the enemy there, and that he had to fight a battle under duress to save his trains. The trains were then in the Cashtown Pass, and Longstreet's corps and Imboden's command were at the western end of it, while Lee, with two corps, was at the other end. Now the party surprised is, as a rule, the party attacked. But in the three days' fighting around Gettysburg, Lee's army was the assailant all the time, and got the better of it on the first and second days. If Lee had selected Gettysburg as a battleground, it is strange that he should apologize for fighting there. General Lee was surprised by A. P. Hill, not by the enemy. It is a curious thing that Lee's report should have shielded A. P. Hill and Heth, who broke up his plan of campaign. It is not claimed that Lee needed cavalry in the battle, but before the battle, to bring him intelligence. How he suffered in this respect his report does not indicate, but it says that the spy told him where the enemy was on the night of the 28th, when Meade's army was fifty miles away at Frederick. If this was the case, Lee had ample time to concentrate at Gettysburg. If he had this information, it is immaterial how he got it. Nobody can show that Lee did anything or left anything undone for want of information the cavalry could have given him. Stuart was absent from the battlefield on the first day because he was away doing his duty under orders, and two divisions of Meade's cavalry were in pursuit of him. Lee and Longstreet were absent from the field on that day because they did not expect a battle at Gettysburg, and did not have foreknowledge of what Hill and Heth were going to do while the spy that is alleged to have appeared on the stage at night and to have changed the program of invasion is an invention for dramatic effect, a spy did appear in a commonplace way two days afterwards, when the army was on the march to Cashtown. 
he brought interesting but unimportant news. Colonel Fremantle, an English officer and a guest at Longstreet's headquarters, said in his diary, June 30th, Tuesday. We marched from Chambersburg six miles on the road towards Gettysburg. In the evening General Longstreet told me that he had just received intelligence that Hooker had been disrated, and Meade was appointed in his place. In another item Fremantle alluded to a spy. So it was on the 30th, after Lee had left Chambersburg, and not on the 28th of June, that a spy reported. Longstreet had a picture of the spy in his book, and under it was inscribed that he brought the first news that Meade was in command. The report makes news brought by a spy the cause of what had occurred before it was brought. Marshall said that the spy appeared at headquarters on the night of the 28th, and told of the change of commanders, and he also said how much surprised Lee was to hear that Hooker had crossed the Potomac, and that he spoke of returning to Virginia. Now it is between fifty and sixty miles from Frederick City, where Meade took command of the army on the afternoon of that day, June 28th, to Chambersburg. The order for the change was kept a secret until it was published that evening. Every road, path, and gap was closely picketed. The spirit in Manfred that rode on the wind and left the hurricane behind might have made the trip in that time, but no mortal could have done it. In this use of a spy, the author of the report imitated a Greek dramatist who brought down a god from the clouds to assist in the catastrophe of his tragedies. Lee's report says that the spy informed him that the Union Army had reached South Mountain. It was there when Lee was in Maryland. But if the spy had just come out of Hooker's lines, as Marshall said, and told of the change in commanders, he would also have told that the army had been withdrawn from the mountain on the 27th, and had marched east to Frederick City. Lee's letter to Ewell speaks of Hooker's army, which shows that he had not heard of any change of commanders when it was written, and there had not been, and he does not mention Meade. The tale of the spy must take its place with Banquo's ghost and other theatrical fictions. On June 30th, Heth, with his division, was at Cashtown, and sent Pettigrew, with his brigade, to Gettysburg to get a lot of shoes that was said to be there. When Pettigrew got in sight of the place he saw a body of cavalry coming in, so he returned and reported to Heth, who proposed to go there the next morning. The cavalry was Buford's division, which kept close to Meade's left flank. At 5 a.m. on July 1st, Hill, with Heth's and Pender's divisions and artillery, left camp for Gettysburg in the same spirit of adventure that took Earl Percy to hunt the deer at Chevy Chase. They evidently intended a raid and to return to camp and meet Lee that evening. All of the impedimenta were left behind. General Lee would be at Cashtown that day, and the army would be concentrated by evening. Lee said that he had no idea of taking the offensive. Heth's leading brigade, archers, soon ran against Buford's pickets. The latter fought his cavalry, dismounted, and checked Heth until Reynolds arrived. Reynolds had left his camp early that morning for Gettysburg before Meade's order had come to retire to Pipe Creek. Heth's report reads, It may not be improper to remark that at this time, nine o'clock on the morning of July 1st, I was ignorant of what force was at or near Gettysburg 
and supposed it consisted of cavalry, most probably supported by a brigade or two of infantry. Archer and Davis were now directed to advance, the object being to feel the enemy, to make a forced reconnaissance, and determine in what force they were, whether or not he was massing his forces on Gettysburg. Heavy columns of the enemy were soon encountered. General Davis was unable to hold his position. Archer's brigade was soon shattered, and he and a large portion of his brigade were captured. If Heth had any curiosity about the enemy being there in force, he and Hill ought now to have been satisfied, and should have retired, that is, if they were only seeking information. But Pender's division was now put in to support Heth's, and was faring no better. Hill would have been driven back to Cashtown, but Ewell, without orders, came to his relief and won the day. Early's division gave the final stroke as he did at Bull Run. Hill said that his division was so exhausted that it could not join in pursuit of the enemy. Yet he called the affair, which had lasted nearly a whole day, a reconnaissance just to conceal his blunder. After the war, Heth published an article in which he said nothing about their making a reconnaissance, but that they went for shoes. He claimed that he and Hill were surprised, and said it was on account of the want of cavalry, yet both said they knew the enemy was there. The want of cavalry might have been a good reason for not going there, it was a poor one for going. Heth did not pretend that he and Hill had orders to go to Kettysburg, nor was there any necessity for their going. All that the army had to do was to live on the country and wait for the enemy at Cashtown Pass, as Lee intended to do. The truth is that General Lee was so compromised by his corps commanders that he stayed on the field and fought the battle on a point of honor. To withdraw would have had the appearance of defeat, and have given the moral effect of a victory to the enemy. A shallow criticism has objected that Lee repeated Hooker's operation with his cavalry at Chancellorsville. Both Lee and Hooker did right. Both retained sufficient cavalry with the main body for observation and outpost duty. The difference in the conditions was that Lee sent Stuart to join Ewell, and the damage he could do on the way would be simply incidental to the march. Hooker's object in detaching his cavalry, on the other hand, was to destroy Lee's supplies and communications. With his superior numbers, Hooker had a right to calculate on defeating Lee, and in that event his cavalry would bar Lee's retreat, as Grant's did at Appomattox. That the inventions of the staff officers have been accepted by historians as true is the most remarkable thing in literary history since the Chatterton forgeries, but the history of the world is a record of judgments reversed. I have told in brief the story of Gettysburg, of the way in which defeat befell the great Confederate commander, and have criticized the report which has his signature, but which it is well known was written by another. It does as great injustice to Lee as to Stuart. Lee may have had so much confidence in the writer that he signed it without reading it, or, if it was read to him, he was in the mental condition of the dying gladiator in the Colosseum. His mind was with his heart, and that was far away. Stuart was the protagonist in the great drama, and no other actor performed his part so well. In a late work by Colonel Furse of the English Army, we read, Stuart was a genial man of gay spirits and energetic habits, 
popular with his men and trusted by his superiors as no other officer in the confederate army his authority was exercised mildly but firmly no man in the south was better qualified to mould the wild element he controlled into soldiers his raids made him a lasting name and his daring exploits will ever find a record alongside the deeds of the most famous cavalry leaders he was mortally wounded in an encounter with sheridan's cavalry at yellow tavern may eighteen sixty four and died a few days afterwards i will add that after general lee lost stuart he had no cavalry corps and no chief of cavalry no one was there who could bend the bow of ulysses and these are deeds which should not pass away and names that must not wither though the earth forgets her empire with a just decay the defence of stuart's conduct in the gettysburg campaign occupied mosby's study and thought over a considerable period of years his championship of his beloved chief resulted in various controversies to some of which acrimonious may be truthfully applied as well as in considerable writing and publication on the subject the account given in these pages was his final work and seems to answer all criticisms which had been aimed at his conclusions the following letter to mrs stuart explains in a measure some of his work on the gettysburg campaign and the discussions which followed washington d c june ninth nineteen fifteen mrs general j e b stuart dear mrs stuart i have received your letter in reply to mine inquiring if you have any unpublished correspondence left by general stuart which i might use in my memoirs of the war which i am preparing i return mcclellan's letter which is dated march twenty second eighteen ninety nine footnote major h b mcclellan author of the life and campaigns of general stuart boston and richmond eighteen eighty five end of footnote he claims credit for having first published in reply to colonel marshall general lee's and longstreet's orders to general stuart which authorized him to go the route in rear of hooker's army in the gettysburg campaign governor stuart and you know that this is not true in the winter of eighteen eighty six eighty seven i was in washington settling my accounts as consul at hong kong longstreet about that time had an article in the century charging general stuart with disobedience of orders and long's memoirs of lee also appeared about the same time with a similar charge as i knew the inside history of the transaction and that the charge was false i went to the office where the confederate archives were kept and got permission to examine them the three volumes of the gettysburg records had not then been published Colonel Scott gave me a large envelope that had the reports and correspondence of the campaign on printed slips. Very soon I discovered Lee's and Longstreet's instructions to Stuart to do the very thing that he did. I was delighted, and so expressed myself to Colonel Scott. He was surprised that McClellan had made no use of them, and told me that McClellan had spent several days in his office and that he had given him the same envelope and papers that he had given me. I told Mr. Henry Stewart, whom I met at the National Hotel, all about my discovery, and that I should reply to Longstreet, and publish this evidence to contradict him and Long. I also wrote to Mr. William A. Stewart and to McClellan of my discovery, and told them that I should reply to Longstreet. 
Mr. Stewart advised me to publish what I had discovered. These documents, with a communication from me, appeared in the Century about May or June, 1887. See Battles and Leaders. In 1896 Colonel Charles Marshall delivered a violent philippic on General Lee's birthday against General Stuart. He imputed to Stuart's disobedience all the blame for the Gettysburg disaster. I replied to Marshall's attack in a syndicated article which was published in Richmond and Boston, and again published Lee's and Longstreet's instructions to Stuart. With this article I also published for the first time Lee's letter to Ewell, written from Chambersburg on June 28, 1863, which exploded the mythical story of the spy on which Marshall had built his fabric of fiction. Some time after my article appeared, in reply to Marshall, McClellan also published a reply to him with the documents which I had published nine years before in the century. But McClellan, like Lee's biographers, were silent about the Chambersburg letter. That it contradicts Lee's report, which Marshall wrote, is admitted by Stuart's critics, but to avoid the effect of it they say the date in the records is wrong. The only evidence they produce is that the report written a month afterward is not consistent with the letter. That was the reason I published the letter. But I have demonstrated that the time that a copy of it was received by Early from Ewell, and the marching of Ewell's divisions in accordance with it, confirm the correctness of the date. McClellan says that Marshall had not dared to answer him, and I can say that although I was the first to attack him, he never dared to answer me. He also speaks of John C. Ropes, of Boston, having written him that his answer was conclusive. But Mr. Ropes had read my article in the Boston Herald, and had written me the same thing a month before McClellan's appeared. Some years before I had read a review by Ropes of McClellan's Life of Stuart, in which he seemed to be very friendly to Stuart. But he said that McClellan had made a very unsatisfactory defense of him on the Gettysburg campaign. I then wrote to Ropes and sent him Bedford's Magazine, October to November, 1891, with an article of mine that had Stuart's orders from Lee and Longstreet. Ropes wrote me that my article had changed his opinion and that in the next volume of his history his views would conform to mine. Unfortunately, he died before the volume was finished. So you see how unfounded McClellan's claim of precedence is. His book, as I told Mr. Henry Stewart nearly thirty years ago, does General Stewart great injustice. It deprives him of the credit of the ride around McClellan. I heard Fitz Lee urge General Stewart not to go on. It defends Fitz Lee against the just criticism of Stuart's report for his disobedience of orders that saved Pope's army from ruin, and came near getting Stuart and myself captured. And it represents the great cavalry combat and victory at Brandy as a successful reconnaissance by Pleasanton, which means that he voluntarily recrossed the Rappahannock after he'd accomplished his object, and not because he was defeated. Very truly yours, signed. John S. Mosby. End of chapter.